more moon science. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. A team of researchers received approval for a $35 million mission to the moon. The group will explore an uncharted portion of the moon, which scientists say was formed by magma below the surface. We'll hear from University of Central Florida's Addie Dove and Carrie Donaldson-Hanna about the promises of that mission. Then, for the first time, scientists have grown plants in genuine lunar dirt. A team at the University of Florida used moon dust samples brought back by the Apollo astronauts to grow plants. NASA senior scientist Sharmila Bhattacharya says it's a key step in establishing a permanent presence on the moon. Lunar science, that's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. A team of scientists is sending a lander and a rover to an area of the moon never before explored. They're massive domes, believed to be made of rock hardened from cooled magma, similar to Mount St. Helens here on Earth. The mission will help scientists better understand the history of the moon, but the mission will also lay critical groundwork for future missions to the moon by astronauts and other rovers. To talk more about the mission and what it could uncover about the moon, we're joined by the mission's investigators and UCF physicists, Carrie Donaldson-Hanna and Addie Dove. Carrie, Addie, thanks for joining us. Hi, Brendan. It's great being here. Thanks for having us. Uh, Carrie, let's start with you. This is a, a super exciting mission. Um, tell me where it's heading and and uh, why you're why you're going there. Yeah, so we're going to be sending our lander and rover to the Grutaisen Domes, which is on uh, the lunar near side. So when we look up at the moon, it's the side of the moon that's facing us. And we're going to be going to a small region within the dark volcanic plains uh, that we see on the lunar surface. And these domes are really of interest because their composition and then their shape are really distinct from the surrounding volcanic plains. And this uh, uniqueness tells us that you know, perhaps the moon was warmer for longer than we anticipated, and maybe there was even some water in its interior um, to help create those compositions. Addie, can you tell us a bit about the spacecraft um, that you'll be sending there? Um, it's, it's a a lander and a rover. What does it look like, and, and what's some of the science that's going to be on it? Um, so actually, I can't tell you anything about either the spacecraft or the rover. <laughs> um, they actually haven't been selected yet. So as part of this process, um, NASA we will work with NASA to define our requirements that we have based on our instrument um, and our payload, um, and we will work with NASA then to find the flight provider um, who will provide both the lander or one provider will be the lander and probably a different provider for the rover. Um, but in terms of the things we we have some control over, um, our instrument suite is going to be two cameras on the lander. Um, they're context and descent cameras, so they'll be looking at what's happening as we descend, um, and then we'll be able to take uh, views of the landing site throughout the mission. Um, and then we have a camera, a visible near-infrared camera, and a thermal camera on the rover, as well as a gamma and neutron, gamma ray and neutron spectrometer on the rover. And that'll be the first time that we've actually had a uh, GRNS on a rover on the moon, on any, anywhere on the surface of the moon. Uh, Carrie, tell us a bit about why this specifically is, is so interesting to planetary scientists. This is the first time that anything is going to be visiting this region of, of the moon and these features. 
Um, what might it be able to tell you about the history of the moon? Yeah, so the the one of the interesting aspects of these features is that, you know, we have had all these great orbital remote sensing data uh, that have looked at these volcanic domes throughout the years, and there's been suggestions that we might know their composition um, based on those data, but the spatial resolution and the spectral resolution that we've had hasn't really given us a definitive fingerprint to what they're made out of. And so the nice thing about our payload is that uh, one will be at the service, so we're going to get great spatial resolution. And two, um, we've selected instruments that will really allow us to, to measure and identify the types of rocks that are making up the surface. And they will tell us whether or not uh, this, the lunar interior was hot for a long time, meaning the magma was allowed uh, to melt for a really, really long time, making it super sticky, uh, which meant when it erupted, it created these domes that are very flat and squatty, um, and whether or not there might have been some water in the interior as well. Addie, I know we've talked to you on the show quite a bit about your research interest, which is which is on dust and regolith, and it's always so fascinating to, to hear your take on, on things. Um, what are you particularly excited about for this mission, and what are you going to be focusing on? I'm, I'm assuming you're going to be looking at dust somehow, right? Turns out everywhere on the moon, right, there is a lot of dust. Um, and that's a, well, it's a common feature of different places on the moon. There might be unique aspects to each of these areas. And because um, these these domes are in an area we've uh, that's unlike anything we've been to before, um, there might be some different um, features to the mineralogy, as, as Carrie mentioned, um, that uh, will influence the behavior of the dust on the surface. Um, beyond that, just having more data from anywhere we do a landing with all of these different vehicles and now with this rover, more data on the behavior of the dust as we're moving around on the surface is really important um, because each time we get more data, it helps us build better systems to either land or to rove. And it'll be it's really crucial for once we start putting humans on the surface and they're walking around or roving around, um, being able to predict how the dust is going to behave um, and build systems that can accommodate for that um, is really important. Carrie, this this is an really exciting mission um you know you, you you both are sending you know scientific equipment to the moon this is this is super exciting um tell me a bit about how this kind of new chapter in in exploration with nasa's focus on the moon and, and these artemis programs are really propelling some of this lunar science forward what, what's ahead what are you excited about well i think you know now that we have improved our capabilities for identifying um, lander providers that can really land us at the surface just about anywhere. It really opens up so many cool geologically interesting as well as regolith interesting or dust interesting um, from Addie's perspective uh, to really give us the opportunity to land anywhere we want on the moon. You know, when we think back to the Apollo era, you know, landing sites were selected based on where it was safe and where, you know, it was easier and where we could have good communications. And now with Artemis ramping up and the clips and the rover providers, you know, really developing new technologies, we, we literally can now land on the top of a volcanic dome, which is what we're, we're going to do. 
And it's really exciting to think about like what will come after being able to land on the top of a volcanic dome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it almost is is unimaginable that how how quickly that this this has happened, right? I mean, we have all of these uh, private companies coming online to do these things, so it's very exciting that that scientists like yourself can can leverage this development. Um, Addy, what are, what are kind of the next steps forward? Um, you, you got the approval from NASA. Um, you mentioned that NASA has to find you a, a launch vehicle and a lander to get you there. But but what's on your plate moving forward here? I'm, I'm sure there's there's a lot of work ahead, right? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, one of the things Carrie mentioned and, and just important to touch on is the, the big importance of these like commercial partnerships with NASA. So I think that that having these other vehicle providers um, and other um, commercial partners and also international partners buying into this mission of both human and scientific exploration is really important to keep us moving forward and to not sort of stall out. Um, And I think that it's great that all of this scientific exploration is happening a little bit ahead of and then in concert with the human exploration side of things. the next steps for us is going to be um, actually getting started, <laughs> building hardware. Um, so we uh, have proposed a couple of diff- uh, several different instruments, as we mentioned. So the next steps is going to be, um, again, figuring out what those instrument requirements are, getting those to NASA so that we can work with the, pay- the lander and rover providers, and then starting working with Ball Aerospace and Arizona State to start building our instruments. Um, and that will involve a lot of just hardware build out, but also calibration and testing. And then eventually we get to the stage where we're able to integrate our, our payload with the lander and the rover. Um, down That happens a couple years down the road. Um, in the meantime, the science team will be spinning up and we'll be starting to look at landing sites, potential landing sites, and what are those sites of interest and helping to define what that will be. Um, and thinking about what awesome science we're going to be able to do while we're there and starting to do little test cases and figure out how we're going to do the analysis when we actually get there. Mm-hmm. And Carrie, this this program isn't just limited to planetary science, planetary scientists in, in academia, right? You are opening this up for education to um, younger scientists, right? Tell me a bit about the partnerships you're doing to kind of educate the up and coming scientists that you're taking along with you on this mission. Yeah, we're really excited about that part of our project. Um, So we, Addie and I are working with Adam LeMay here at the University of Central Florida, and we're actually expanding a program that Addie and Adam have been developing or working on for years where we bring in local high school teachers, um, we allow them to take a peek into the full um, mission timeline and what we're working on uh, wherever we, we're at within the mission timeline. And they get to see how we're building instruments and integrating the instruments and what science uh, we're going to be doing. And that will help drive forward how they build uh, materials for their classroom. And uh, we're also interested or will be allowing undergraduates um, to be helping us build our social media platforms and our websites and participate in team meetings and activities. And then we also have graduate students, both uh, at UCF and at some of the other research institutions that will be joining our group. And we'll also have a postdoc uh, joining us here at UCF. Uh, and finally, when, when can we expect to uh, see this, this thing land on the moon? Yeah, so the projected uh, landing is in mid-2026, um, but we will be finding out uh, 
soon from NASA what the official timeline is, uh, but we're, we're still waiting to hear about that. Very exciting. Uh, can't wait to hear what you all learn. Um, and congratulations to you both. Thank you so much for, for sharing this mission with us. Yeah, thanks, Brendan. Thanks. That was University of Central Florida physicists and researchers Addie Dove and Carrie Donaldson Hanna. Still to come, Plants on the Moon, Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. For the first time, scientists have grown plants in genuine lunar dirt. A team at the University of Florida used moon dust samples brought back by the Apollo astronauts to grow plants. This is a big deal, says NASA senior scientist Sharmila Bhattacharya, as it's a key step in establishing a permanent presence on the moon. Sharmila joins us now to talk more about the findings and how the ability to grow plants on the moon will help future lunar astronauts. Sharmila, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Brendan. It's a pleasure to be here. So this this is a very exciting experiment, and I, I, I'm very excited to hear all about it. Um, let, let's start at the beginning. What went into making this research possible? Where did you actually get this lunar dirt uh, that you attempted to grow these plants in? Yeah, it is a very exciting story and goes back to the 60s and 70s when during the Apollo era, you know, our astronauts were, were gathering samples from the surface of the moon to bring back to Earth. And uh, initially, some preliminary work was done back, you know, back in the day in the in the early 70s to show that, you know, there was no major toxic effect to plants or animal life from this uh, material. But because this material is so precious and nobody knew when we would be able to go back and get some more samples. So they have, for the most part, been kept, uh, you know, extremely carefully um, you know, in a way that, you know, their, their chemical uh, and physical structure won't be altered by the conditions on Earth. And uh, they've been stored like that um, at NASA Johnson Space Center. But of course, for science, you know, with very good justification um, and a lot of review, you know, little bits uh, of this material has been given over the years to scientists, both uh, within the U.S., but also internationally. Why was it important to use actual lunar soil? I know there are, there are quite a few uh, engineers, um, you know, that, that use synthetic lunar regolith to do some engineering experiments. Why was it important to use actual soil or actual regolith from the moon for this experiment? Absolutely. Great question. So, you know, even though we do have lunar simulants as well as Mars, uh, you know, regolith simulants that we do use on Earth, and in fact, they're very useful because you can get them in larger quantities. So you can do a lot of preliminary testing and setup using the regular uh, using the simulant material. Um, and in fact, this paper, you know, published by the University of Florida, uh, professors Paul and Furl, uh, they did indeed use the simulant as a control. But going back to your question, Brendan, as to why do you actually need to use the real material, the reason is that this the the actual lunar regolith material is, you know, it is very similar to the simulant in terms of, you know, compositions and stuff by and large. But the lunar regolith itself does differ from the simulant in a few different ways that I will uh, you know, tell you in a second. But also remember that on the surface of the moon, the regolith 
can be different on different parts of the moon. So it's actually very hard to have a simulant that represents all the possible regolith, uh, you know, compositions and, and, and structures that you can get on the moon. So that's one point that, that everything, you know, regolith in different parts of the moon will look and feel different. Um, the second thing is, you know, uh, some of the major differences or not even major, but some of the important differences, I should say, between the simulant material and actual regolith has to do with, for example, how uh, some of the mature regolith uh, on the surface of the moon can be more uh, sharp. You know, it's sharp and abrasive, and also it is weathered by, uh, you know, solar wind and kind of radiation, um, you know, that's coming from uh, all around it uh, in the, the lunar environment and beyond. And so what happens is this material uh, gets embedded in glass. So, so it's, it's this agglutinate of various different, you know, iron and, and metal and uh, other, other chemical components that get encased in glass. And so it can be very jagged, it can be very sharp. And then the oxidation state of some of the metals like iron can be different. Uh, the nanophase iron that's present on the surface of the moon, the oxidation state can be different, uh, again, depending on if it's mature uh, or, or younger uh, lunar material, uh, and therefore can be different from the simulant. But having said that, the simulant is a really good control material because it, it is very similar to the regolith. It's kind of like an average um, representative of the lunar material. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like there's a lot of challenges that go into this. There's there's the geographical issue, right? Where, where does this stuff come from? There's the structural issue of this stuff. Lunar regolith is very sharp and, and unlike stuff that we have here on Earth. And then there's also like the chemical and biological makeup of it. It's not similar to what plants are used to here on Earth. This seems like a, a very hard hurdle for scientists to uh, to mount. But, you know, what were the, the results? Were you were you all able to grow something in such a challenging uh, substance? Absolutely, Brendan. I'm, that's precisely uh, the reason I think that we're so excited with this result. Uh, is the fact that, you know, we really didn't know if plants would be able to grow uh, in this kind of material, you know, using it as a substrate to grow. And so the results were, in fact, that, yes, all of the uh, seeds, you know, and this is the, using the Arabidopsis thaliana model plant, very commonly used on uh, in labs, you know, on Earth for doing research with plants. And all of the seeds that were tested with these three different regolith samples uh, from Apollo 11, 12, and 17, uh, you know, all of these actually resulted in the Arabidopsis growing. So number one, that was very exciting as a result from this paper that that all of these samples were able to, um, uh, you know, uh, encourage uh, the growth of these plants. Now, one one thing I should state uh, is that while the regolith was the the substrate that the plant was grown in, of course we had, you know, the the group had supporting material. So, for example, they used. Um, uh, you know, nutrient supplements, just like you would on Earth, like you would use fertilizers and food, you know, plant food to, to allow the plants to grow and get the nutrients they need. So that was given to them. Uh, and
and of course, you know, light and, and other conditions, you know, the, the, uh, the, the gaseous environment that they need, all of that was provided to the plants, of course, as you would imagine. So number one, all of the seeds grew in all three different types of soils. Now, what was very interesting, though, is that the, the second part of the results of this paper showed that while the plants did grow in this material, they did show signs of stress. And they did show physical signs of stress when you looked at the plant and also when you looked at them at a molecular level. So when you took them and you took the cells and you broke open the cells and you looked inside for the DNA and the RNA and how the genes, uh, you know, which are the components within the DNA that actually make RNA and then protein that makes the plant cell function. Uh, when you looked at that detailed molecular signature, uh, what was seen is that at the molecular level also, the plant was showing signs of stress. And so that was interesting too, again, to be expected, because as you said earlier, this is a pretty unusual material, you know, it's jagged, it's, it, it can have these, you know, highly oxidized, you know, oxidizing components in it. And so the plants are definitely reacting to it and showing signs of stress, but they're able to grow. What is the next step? And then what is kind of NASA's goal with this? I, I'm, my assumption would be that NASA is not interested in growing ornamental plants on the moon, right? We don't care about <laughs> hedges or trees or anything. This is, this is to grow food for, for future astronauts, right? I mean, is that, is that where this is heading? And, and if so, how, what else needs to be done to make sure that we get there to kind of get over some of these challenges that you've outlined? Absolutely. So you're right. One very important use of these plants in the future will, of course, be to provide supplemental nutrition, for example, to the crew um, or to the inhabitants of, of you know, uh, these habitats, you know, that we have in space. And so, for example, you know, microgreens, etc., can provide a lot of nutrition and yet use, you know, very small amounts of resource to, to grow them. So yes, definitely using as a, a you know, supplement to nutrition is an important value. But, you know, something that we don't realize because we take for granted on the surface of the earth that we're surrounded by greenery and plants and flowers and all of that. Um, so we don't actually realize how much uh, we as humans rely on having this greenery around us for our, um, you know, quality of life, so to speak, you know, for our happiness, so to speak. So to give you an example, even on the International Space Station, where the crew can be there sometimes for months uh, on end, you know, they're away from their family, you know, they are working very hard, they're in this unusual environment, even though that is low Earth orbit and it's closer to Earth. However, what we have found and what the data shows is that the crew, you know, humans are very, very positively uh, stimulated by having plants around them. So, so a second, you know, important component to this, Brendan, is the fact that in addition to having them as a source of, you know, potential nutritional supplementation, uh, they are really there also to, to kind of help 
provide uh, in future, you know, and what we envision is that we will have plants in there, just like we have plants inside the house, not because we need them to eat, but because it, they make us comfortable and happy. And so there's that taste of home, you know, or that feel, the comfort of home uh, when you're so far away from your actual home. So, so there's also that benefit. Um, and then you know, the third part of your question, you know, what do we need to do to, to make this a reality? Um, and that is a very good question because from the science and research aspect of it, this is a first study that we were just talking about, you know, that we, that we can have plants grow in this material. However, as we also talked about, the plants are showing signs of stress. So we need to optimize we need to figure out, you know, what do we need to supplement to make these grow even better? Um, and, and actually, you know, are there different plants that will react differently? Are there some that would be even better suited to this environment, right? And so on. So, yes, from the science and the research perspective, we have more work that we need to do, which is really what makes it all so exciting. Well, I'm I'm hoping you don't come to me for any advice because I, I would not be uh, helpful at all if you looked at my backyard. But I didn't even I didn't even think about that as as a, a kind of psychological or or social exactly. um, benefit to having it there. You you talk to some of these astronauts on the ISS when when they talk about their their gardening, they're so excited and so proud about it. Um, and and that I do want to ask you about that. Were there any lessons learned from, um, you know, some of these experiments of growing? plants and vegetables on the International Space Station that went into into this research or will be used for for this this future research as, as you've described. Absolutely. Absolutely 100% yes. So in fact, what we're sort of seeing this as it's the stepwise approach. So we're using low earth orbit, you know, the International Space Station and before the space shuttle as you may remember Brendan where we also used to do a lot of research on the shuttle that then transitioned to the International Space Station. You know, we're hoping in the 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 next several years then the commercial partners will bring on uh, stations in low earth orbit that we can then continue this research on and then of course with the surface of the moon and so as in the stepwise approach what we've learned from the international space station so far has been very very valuable and indeed exactly as you say is going to be the the stepping stone that we're going to use you know everything we've learned about how to efficiently water plants on the international space station you know what plants are growing and as you may have seen you know we've grown uh, arabidopsis as a model plant yes but also you know lettuce and um, radishes and, you know, tomatoes. And there are all these different, um, uh, you know, plants and, and crops, et cetera, that we've used on the International Space Station. And we're definitely going to use that information to help us as we go into this next, you know, step of NASA's goals of, of growing plants uh, beyond low Earth orbit. Super exciting, extremely impressive. 
you scientists are, are growing plants in lunar soil. I'm killing succulents here in my office. So uh, that's <laughs> off to you all. <laughs> Charmilla, thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing this research with us. Happy to, to be a part of this. That was NASA senior scientist Sharmila Bhattacharya. That's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's space station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Our intern is Caroline Brockler. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.